We're live. We are live. Welcome to episode three of Popcorn Lore. We said it all. Edit that. Edit that. <laughs> and the good news is we're not canceled yet. Yeah, we're not canceled yet. It's amazing. By the by CBS. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, episode two, we covered uh, V for Vendetta, and now we're on to um, an animated film, probably one of many, with Aaron being on the on this show with us. <laughs> yes, I'm. I might or may or may not be a fan of anime and animated movies. Thank you for giving your your blessing to me for for introducing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to be talking about um, 1997's Princess Mononoke. Cue the music. Cue the music. There's a place high in the mountains, far to the west of here. It's where the spirit of the forest dwells, and it's a very dangerous place for humans. To enter there is certain death. The spirit of the forest? I've been told the beasts there are all giants, just as they were in the dawn of time. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, uh, Princess Mononoke. Is this uh, was this your first time seeing the movie, uh, Tony? I believe so. Unless uh, twenty five years ago, I might have seen it and I forgot. Uh, pretty sure it's the first time I've seen it. Yeah. Okay, and uh, I'm definitely sure it's not uh, Aaron's first time seeing this film. That's for sure. No, I've seen this movie. <laughs> I've seen this. I've seen this film actually too many times if anything i think uh, too many times yeah you've probably seen it more than me to be honest and it's one of uh, my favorite movies it's very very possible and it's funny because my wife out of nowhere last week was like hey we should watch mononoke hime so it ended up being perfect i'm uh, sorry i put this mononoke mononoke hime if i call it that it's the name for it in japanese but my, that's what my wife right. said so um okay yeah awesome so um, yeah, Princess Mononoke. Uh, it came out in 1997. So just to give a quick, uh, you know, view of what was happening in 1997, you had movies such as uh, Spawn. Okay. You had uh, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. You had Donnie Brasco. You had The Fifth Element. You had L.A. Confidential. Ooh. And of course, you had uh, Goodwill Hunting, which was uh, also one of my favorite movies as well. That was a, and that was a good off. year. And Face <laughs> Off. Yeah, we can't sure, forget man. Nick Cage and uh, John Travolta, of course. That's a good year for movies. Yeah, it is. It is. So, um, yeah, so Princess Mononoke, for those who never saw the movie, um, I'll just give a quick synopsis really fast. So, basically, set in a mystical and ancient Japan. The film follows Ashitaka, a young prince cursed by a boar demon. As he seeks a cure, he becomes entangled in a conflict between the four spirits and the iron mining town of Irontown, led by Lady Iboshi. Ashitaka befriends San, a human raised by wolves, and tries to find balance between nature and human progress. 
So um, this was my pick for this uh, for this week. So I'm just going to give you a little background about this movie. Um, it's one of my favorite movies. It's not in my top 64, <laughs> <laughs> but it is in my top 10 movies of, uh, for, for me personally. So uh, I got introduced to this movie. I was about um, 14 or 15 years old. And at the time, uh, my mother was hosting international students from uh, parts of Asia, in particular, Korea and Japan. And uh, one of those students, uh, a Korean student, he had this movie on VHS. And um, we had like a little TV upstairs. And uh, I was kind of curious about it because I was like, this guy is in his 20s. Why does he have this movie? Like, it looks like a cartoon. And it's (laughs) kind of like when you're 14, 15, you're kind of out of that phase, right, of like watching cartoons. So when I um, decided to pop it in the VCR and, and watch it, I was just like blown away. I I, I, I realized this was not just an ordinary cartoon. <laughs> was it your first time watching a Japanese anime? Uh, it wasn't my first time watching anime. I was already introduced to like uh, Dragon Ball and stuff like that. Um, but as a movie, it was the first time I really looked at movies as having like meaning behind it. And I think that's what really kind of uh, stuck with me interesting um, as far as that's concerned so yeah what about you guys what it was your first contact with uh with the film i know tony it was your first time but uh you aaron do you remember the first time you ever watched it i do actually i um when i was in university uh, or or maybe late high school like i went through this phase where i was just i was binging all sorts of anime it was like it was my my weeb phase so <laughs> I uh, downloaded this thing at the time that was basically every single one of uh, Hao Miyazaki's movies, all the way from like the 1970s up until like, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but basically it was like up until his most recent film. And what I did is I just started watching them in chronological order. So every single night, basically around the time I would go to bed, I'd throw one on and then I'd watch it. And then the next day, next one and the next one. And once he, like Miyazaki, he had a phase where he had so many good movies in a row in the early 2000s. So as I, as I got later to the end of the movies, it was really like, uh, it was really nice because there was uh, like this movie, obviously, which is my first time watching it. Um, like Howl's Moving Castle, um, there's like a, a Spirited Away. There's a couple other ones that were in there. So that was my mm-hmm. first experience, um, both with Miyazaki and um, with this movie. Awesome. So um, you know, I obviously it's one of my favorite movies, and I hold the movie in, in such high regard. But I would put, probably put this movie on. You know, there's certain animated movies that are very, very special. I find in uh in movie history and i i honestly i I would say like this movie and a movie like even snow white or akira or ghost in the shell i think it's in that company for me personally and i think that like even spirit away which is the kind of like the movie that came out after this movie that kind of got all the accolades Uh um for the animation i still think that you know princess mononoke if it wasn't for princess mononoke um, it wouldn't uh, be what it is. I think this this kind of broke the door open for Studio Ghibli in a lot of ways, and I'll get into the reasons why uh, very shortly. So I don't know if uh, you guys have anything to add uh, before I kind of dive into the lore. 
Uh, for me, uh, I'm kind of a newbie in in, the, in the anime, in Japanese anime. Mm -hmm. I could probably count in two hands or even like maybe one hand the, the anime movies I've seen. Okay. So it was kind of, and it, and if I did see one, it was a long time ago. So it was kind of like uh, something new for me. Okay. And uh, I'm happy I, that you enjoyed it, though. Or you seem to. Yeah. Yeah. It. Uh, it was a different experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I was amazed at the attention to detail and appreciate how many hours of animation it must have took to make this movie and the voice acting and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and a few other things I liked. about I'll talk about it. Okay, cool. All right, cool. so basically we can dive into the lore now. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. The lore. Okay, so basically um, Princess Mononoke actually originally uh, started as an idea that uh, Miyazaki uh, started drawing the concept art in the 1970s, actually. And basically he started uh, by drawing... The, the initial structure of the, of the story was basically a princess that lived in a forest with a beast named Mononoke. Um, that beast became something, and I want you, uh, maybe Aaron can take a guess as to what that became. The beast became something. Yeah. So basically, uh, huh? <laughs> so basically it became uh, Totoro, actually. So oh, if you have a look at the original concept, um, you'll see a, a beast that looks very, very similar to Totoro, which was a, a movie that was released prior to uh, Princess Mononoke and became like a cultural kind of thing uh, yeah. for uh, Miyazaki. So yeah, so that's how it started, actually. So he used some of it because it was refused, actually, his initial um, submission. So he used some of the uh, the workings of that uh, and then kind of put it on the on the shelf for about a couple of decades. But what happened is that he became a much better storyteller. And um, what was happening is that Studio Ghibli, uh, because of the successes that they had with uh, Totoro and um, even um, Kiki's Delivery Service, yeah, um, he was able to, to have this project. And he didn't want to, uh, he wanted to do something very special. And kind of like a project, like uh, like I mentioned before, a Snow White or Thriller, uh, or something like that. He had it in mind that this was going to be his big uh, movie, so he he put everything into it. So basically, um, he see, I, there's a there's a memo that he 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 wrote in '91, and it it read there could be no happy ending, even amidst the hatred and slaughter. There are things that are worthy of life. So that's what he wrote about. Uh, I found that was really interesting about uh, the making of uh, Princess Mononoke. So um, basically, this movie was the most cost uh, costly movie at the time for Studio Ghibli. It costed them uh, $20 million, which is a lot of money uh, for an, an animation. And basically, they were able to get this money because in 96... Uh, they hired a guy named Stephen Alpert, who basically was hired to uh, make sure that Studio Ghibli would go international. Uh, that was basically his his role. And um, to just put things in perspective, the movie did exceptionally well. Um, it, it costed twenty million, but in nine, in November of ninety seven, when it released, twelve million people in Japan went to see it, and it made over sixty million dollars. 
it wow. was actually it actually uh, that made it basically the highest grossing film of all time in Japan. Can you believe wow. that? Yeah, that's. I know cool. it was the I know it was the top one in ninety when it came out that yeah. year. But I, I didn't know it was the. But just around the corner, there was a movie that would come out named Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, basically take over. So basically, um, after that happened, it also found tremendous success on VHS, the format that I that I watched it on, and uh, it sold millions of copies uh, in that as well. And so, in the mid '90s, as I mentioned, they hired this guy named Stephen Alpert, and uh, he actually wrote a book chronicling some of the making of uh, Princess Mononoke, and it's called "I'm a Gaijin, the man who sold Ghibli to the world." <laughs> So a guy Jin is basically um, a Westerner or a white person. What would you say, uh, Aaron? Is that? Uh, the, it's a, it's a it's a guy Jin is like a it just means foreigner. So foreigner, it's like a, okay, a, a non-Japanese person. Okay, okay. So um, how they did that basically, how they accomplished this feat is that uh, Buena Vista, which was one of the subsidiaries uh, of. Um, uh, was was a company, sorry. Uh, they wanted to buy the, the entertainment rights to Studio Ghibli films. And Toshio Suzuki, who was the producer who worked very closely with um, with Miyazaki, told them, okay, no problem. We, we'll sell you the rights, but there's one condition. You have to make Disney the distrib- distributor. Well, Disney the distributor. So, um, so they signed this deal. You know, they signed a deal that they were going to make uh, this film, The Distributor. And the reason why Toshio Suzuki wanted this to happen is because he he saw that whatever was popular in the States, it kind of trickled back to Japan, whatever the, the trend was, right? Mm. So if they had tremendous success, if, if they were able to launch this movie, and he had no doubt in Miyazaki's uh, abilities, um, that it would, you know, be extra popular in yeah. Japan, which, which it did. There was only one problem, though. <laughs> they watched the film and they realized that this is not your typical uh, movie mm. for kids because yeah. the f- opening sequence of the movie is pretty, uh, pretty <laughs> graphic to say yeah. the yep. least. It's a, one of the most gripping and exciting openings for a movie, too, for sure. So, uh, so Disney came back to them and they're like, "Hey, by the way, <laughs> we won't be able to di- <laughs> distribute this." So uh, we're going to send you to our our uh, our um, one of our subsidiaries, and it's Miramax. Okay. And so Miramax was headed uh, at this time. Can anybody take a guess who was the Harvey Weinstein? Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> oh, and his brother Bob. <laughs> and uh, Harvey Weinstein actually at the time was known as Harvey Scissorhands because what he would do is that oh. he would cut every movie oh, yeah. and try to edit it as much as possible to really get the box office. Uh, uh, to try to get the most out of the box office. So when Toshio Suzuki and uh, Stephen Alpert and those guys heard about this, that it was going to Miramax, they actually sent a package to Walt Disney Company. And in the package, there was a samurai sword with a note <laughs> and it said, no cuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty so wild, cool. eh? Yeah, that's pretty very wild. wild. So uh, that's the backstory, pretty much, of um, for uh, Princess Mononoke. Um, we can dive into uh, more stuff, uh, I guess, um, as it goes on. But I just want to hear your guys' take about like some of the stuff uh, I just said, and like how how do you view the film after that? 
Do you find that's pretty interesting knowing this kind of backstory or did you already get the sense that this is like an epic movie? And, uh... Tony, you want to go first? Yeah. Well, I, I obviously don't know uh, as much as the movie uh, the, as you, but uh, it's just interesting how movies get transitioned from continent to continent. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I did read about the Harvey one scene. He uh, he was furious when he couldn't wasn't able to cut it. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's really crazy how 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 this movie got involved. You know, like uh, two different countries and uh, politics and uh, all the producers. And uh, it was redone completely with audio, uh, with English dubbing too. I heard even some Japanese audience saw the movie, the English version. (laughs) Yeah. Watch it too, right? And speaking of that, actually, if I can just piggyback off that really fast, like I saw the movie at first when it was dubbed in English. Oh, yeah. yeah. I I really enjoyed it. And till this day, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, doing research for this movie, I I was like, that's really weird because normally I don't really like dubbed versions and uh, I usually prefer the Japanese native language. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that they hired Neil Gaiman to do the translation. And Neil Gaiman, if you guys don't know, he worked on American – well, he's the, he's the creator of American Gods and Sandman. So there, it's no coincidence as to why I like the English dub. It's because it was done in a way that was like – they got this guy, basically this expert – uh, Neil Gaiman to work on it. And that's why the dub is so good for Princess Mononoke, actually. So they give it love in, in that regard as well. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, so uh, I'm not super surprised by some of that stuff. I, like, uh, Miyazaki's personality, is he's known to be extremely meticulous. So, um, for example, I know during that time, uh, like, uh, you know the movie Toy Story? So that movie, that movie had came out and it was all computer generated, right? So Miyazaki is a very, very like particular person, and he he they basically chose to have everything like hand drawn in the movie, more or less. Like I think a very very small percentage of the movie at the time uh, was made using computers, and the rest is done yeah. all by hand. Ten percent, ten percent of the movie. Ex- actually. Yeah, exactly. So that doesn't. Which was huge at, at the time. Also, yeah. it was a, the first time that they were really using that uh, in this type of animation. Yeah. Yeah, that just shows like the magnitude of the movie, obviously. Right. But yeah, that doesn't surprise me because just because of his personality and how particular it is. And like Tony was saying before, you can tell in the level of detail of, of the movie, like there's so many interesting small details. And frankly, in all of his movies, but especially in this movie, that it's it's really it's not uh, I'm not surprised at all. And it's really, really cool lore. I had to add as well that this movie actually won the Academy Award in uh, Japan for the best film. It was the first animated film to do that. Uh, the other film afterwards being Spirited Away. Yeah. And afterwards, they put a they put it as a side feature. It was like they made it like animated feature. They didn't put it anymore into like the, the films because I guess some people they didn't. Uh, I wasn't aware really that uh, Japan they has a ca- Academy Awards. Yeah, yeah, they have their own. Uh, is it called Academy Awards? I, it just I, must be called something else. I think it is from my my research that I, that okay. I did, but yeah, apparently, uh, yeah. So it's just to show you, like, it was just a beloved movie um, overall. It's Even called though, the I, Japan Academy Film Prize, so more or less Academy Awards, and yeah, it looks like they've been doing it for forty-four years. So <laughs> there you go. There's, there's some more popcorn lore for you. 
<laughs> so to to get inspiration for this movie, I, I feel like sometimes in an artist's life, they they're at a time where, you know, it's still it's still raw mixed with like kind of like their level of mastery. And I feel like in a film like this, you you get both worlds with Miyazaki. Whereas I feel like with Spirited Away, he kind of mastered his art at that time. So it's kind of like uh, this is still kind of like in there's still a bit of elements of rawness to mm. his work, which I really really enjoy. It's almost like the real uh, picture. Yeah. Um, and to do this, like to get this, because if you notice in the movie, there's a lot of uh, as you mentioned, a uh, level of detail. Even when Ashitaka, like when he leaves his village and everything and the way he like preps and everything, it really um, makes the movie feel like the world is really lived and it's really real, you know. And uh, in order to do this, they spent three days in a Japanese island called Yakushima, I believe. Maybe I'm mispronouncing this. And the forestry there, if you look at pictures of it online, it's almost exactly like the movie. It's wow. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's it's the first time I hear of scene um, scouting or location scouting for an anime, like real life location sc- scouting for an for an for a cartoon, right? Or an anime. Yeah. Which is uh interesting. I'm just showing uh, Tony pictures right now of the forest, and you can tell it's like almost exactly like the anime. Yeah, yeah. It really brings oh, you there. When I oh, went wow. to Japan, I really wanted to go visit there, actually, because I was such a big fan of the movie. But it's just, you know, you have to really plan uh, this destination. It's yeah. not it's, uh, destination. That it's very close to where my my wife lives, actually, and where oh, I, really? I, I, okay. I visited uh, I visited the, an area that was probably very similar. It's like it's up in the mountains, basically. It takes a long time to get there, even uh, even when you're traveling from Japan. It's basically in the. It looks like in the most southern part. It's uh, it, so it looks like Kagoshima is just south of Kumamoto, which is uh, where my wife is from, which is cool and where I visited. I got the opportunity to check it out, so that's kind of neat, actually. Actually, speaking of forests, um, I don't like I said, I don't watch animes often. I most the great grand great majority of the films I watch are just uh, real life films, and what one thing that touched me a lot about this movie is the forest. And uh, when they're walking through the forest and uh, the magical creatures they find there and just uh, the feeling you get walking into the forest and you don't know what's going to, what's going to come up in the next corner and you don't know. Uh, and then you come up with the stream and something happens and just like, there's a magical allure about the forest. And the, I think the last time I felt that way was when I was a little kid and I would, would watch those Disney movies in the forest, you know, because uh, all the other movies that there I watched, like you don't really have any uh, exploration in the forest for uh, real life movies. So that was something that uh, that touched me, and also the fantasy element, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. the magical creatures, you know, like you would see fantasy elements that are out of this world and. Uh, so he he that guy was done definitely on purpose. Miyazaki wanted to blend a mixture of uh, Shintoism, of uh, mythology, of folklore. He wanted to kind of mix it all together with environmentalism, obviously for the movie's message. And um, yeah, so the themes that are present uh, in the in the film, it's there's a lot of moral ambiguity, right? Because yeah, you you want to side with the forest animals, right? But at the same time, you know, their anger and bitter and, you know, which you can understand. 
But at the same time, when you look at Lady Iboshi in the Iron Town, um, you know, she's very progressive. You know, the town is, you know, uh, she's able to help lepers and yeah. prostitutes yeah. and, you know, be more like forward in that regard. Um, so there's no there's no real bad or bad yeah. guy or good guy. It's different from other uh, stories where the villain is like a pure villain. Exactly. Like there's no good in them at all. That's right? a typical Walt Disney script where yeah. there's like the big bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So this was... But uh, this time, like, the, the, the villain is also a hero. <laughs> so it's like... The, it's it's kind of like real life yeah except in real life when you have like true psycho evil psychopaths mass murderers okay fine mm-hmm. but more most of the time they're bad but they're trying to do something good for their families or someone else and uh, it's more realistic if you take a character like um just to t- show you how multi-layered Miyazaki wanted this movie because he wanted every character to be complex and deep and you kind of have to like you know if you take a cap- character like uh G- uh Jikobo, Jiko, yeah. Jiko, yeah. Uh, he's hilarious, this character. Yeah. But you know, yeah. when Miyazaki designed him, he wasn't sure. He wanted him maybe to be a government spy, a ninja, a religious person, or a very good guy. And he actually says, like, he just made him, he just made him all of those things, you know? So it's kind of like you, it's up to you to take the angle of which one you perceive him as, you know, kind of thing. It's funny, I see that we we call it we we call him a funny character, and I I see here that in the English dub he's uh, played by Billy Bob Thornton, <laughs> which is one of the fun, you know, a very funny guy. Yeah. So, so Ashitaka and uh, and San. Um, so Ashitaka is a very um, interesting protagonist because he doesn't, uh, you know, he's he's kind of like looking at this kind of like as a bystander you I mean i mean he he has no real uh foot in the battle really he's just trying to he's kind of like observing you're, you're kind of going through his lens yeah and i think a great uh quote that i took from uh the movie dune actually <laughs> it's like a great man doesn't seek to lead he is called to it and and, and he answers and i feel like that's really, really like ashitaka in a sense that like you know he leaves his village he leaves what he's he he, he he's known you know to go search for this cure. And then he befriends San, who also has her own kind of lore in a, in a sense, which is like um, being raised like a feral, uh, f- uh, like a feral uh, living, which is found in so many mythologies and stories, right? I mean, the founding of Rome, for example, you know, or um, the jungle book, Mowgli, you know? So it's, it's um, these themes and stuff. Miyazaki kind of takes them, and he kind of like uh you know molds them into this world that he, he creates right what about you aaron what did you uh take away from any lore or anything like that in the movie yeah so uh something that's kind of interesting that you were talking about is um is stuff related to like war so miyazaki's uh some something at least that's kind of interesting about him is that like in a lot of his movies he seems to talk about like war and and a big part of that obviously is that uh he was very young at the time mind you but obviously he growing up or whatever he felt the impacts of war um and his father even was uh was a um someone that made like airplanes he, he's also obsessed with airplanes too actually he has a couple of yeah, movies that have, is, like yeah. airplanes and stuff and actually the reason that he named his studio studio ghibli is it's named after 
like a, a fighter plane. I think it's even a plane maybe that his father had built or, or something along those lines. But uh, Oh, interesting. yeah, so yeah, the, the war aspect of stuff, I think, um, is pretty cool. And, uh, and that's something um, that, that has had like a pretty profound effect on him. And obviously, you, it, it has a lot of like uh, major impacts in the movie. I found one of the funny things about this movie. It's um, I don't I don't know if you guys caught on to this, but you know Iron Town. Uh, apparently, it was inspired by John Ford, who was like the famous uh, Western director, and Oh, okay. uh, who had a big influence on uh, Sergio uh, Leone as well in the Western. And you know, like the the common trope of like a man enters the town and like he has to save Yeah, the town yeah. and whatever. Right. I found it's it's really ironic because these themes they come from like Kurosawa, right, which is a Japanese Right. director. Uh, with Yojimbo and those type of films, so, so yeah, so the Iron Town was inspired by uh, by John Ford actually. That would make Um, Ashitaka Clint Eastwood. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like he comes into the town, and Yeah, you know, all the girls like him. He, he's got he's, he's got a he's got a throw down. Yeah, uh... <laughs> exactly. The Mexican standoff is going to happen, and <laughs> yeah, you hear the music as you some said like in the beginning. some like uh, dust like kicks across the uh, the horizon. Exactly. But speaking of which, the um, we could talk about the references because uh, you have the industrial, the, the the sort of the the western uh, Right. town Right. The sort industrial of develop, kind of time. and then there's other references like uh, the environment and uh, war Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, nature and good versus evil and all these things, right? Yeah, yeah, for Yeah. sure. And I think that's the, I mean, it's, it's themes that we're still living today, right? Climate change and Yeah. all the, those things are really relevant. And I think this is what makes the, the film last and, and, and age so well, because these themes, you know, like to put it bluntly, Miyazaki, he kind of like said, like, we're basically doomed, right? But even though we're doomed, there's still things that are, you know, like I said, worth, worth seeing in a, in a sense or to maintain, you know? Mm There's one thing I'm wondering if you guys know more about, like the bulls uh, in the end hmm during the war, while well, the war, um, The head bull was name was Oko, Okoto. He The said the that the blind one the the yeah, the yeah the white one. yeah Yeah, he said uh, we we know we're gonna go to our doom. Um, but we're gonna charge anyway. Even though we know they have bombs and we're gonna we're all gonna die, we're gonna charge anyway because we're proud people. And I'm wondering if that uh, references something in Japanese culture. like uh Bushidos Uh, or I uh see. A samurai, yeah samurai culture. maybe Yeah. samurai culture yeah I'm wondering what that reference is Interesting. but it could just be an element of the story and but that was pretty cool One thing I I find that we sometimes neglect on this podcast, which maybe we shouldn't, is the score. I think this the yeah one of the the score here in this movie is like unbelievable. It's by Joe Hisashi, who usually does the score for Studio Ghibli films, but this one in particular is um is really honestly it's really really beautiful. Um, and I think it it adds like I I can't picture this movie without the score. You know, it's one of those films like uh like The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, you know, or um, Pulp Fiction, where the score is such a part of the character and such Yeah, a well, part Pulp of. Fiction is it's it's the score is uh, 
is applied in almost an extreme sense. You know, you have uh, you have a slow scene with with full, uh, full music, full loud music, and something. Yeah, yeah. In this movie, it's, it's the score is applied more. Nor, uh, in, yeah, in normal normally, way. yeah, but yeah, but I'm saying even Pulp Fiction, a yeah. film like that, I, I can't imagine it without that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like exactly. the music is used to. Yeah, to you like, need it it's like as it's a color. Like it really, yeah, did, like, yeah, that's true. You yeah. know, it really emphasizes things. And this movie is the same for me. I feel like uh, the score does such an amazing job at uh, bringing out those emotions, like you were saying. You know, that that feeling of excitement or mysticism or yeah. you know adventure or you know. And uh, it really shows how powerful music can be in in a film, especially an animated film. Yeah. Uh, what about so, you, Ian? Yeah. So um, I have a couple of things about Joe Hisashi. So uh, I think we talked about this, or I, I, but I'm not sure. Something that's interesting is, um, I, as you know, I'm a big fan of Quincy Jones, and actually Joe uh, Hisashi, he his like moniker or whatever he was he, like he was also a massive fan of quincy jones and so when he was like creating his that's not obviously his real name when he was like kind of making his like stage name or whatever he tried to make it sound kind of like quincy so that that's actually how he he ended up getting his his last name essentially um yeah so and then in terms of uh the scores it's pretty interesting because so i have a young kid um and uh whenever we oh, watch, i got like, one of those lying around somewhere <laughs> <laughs> when, whenever we watch ghibli movies like uh those movies and the music in particular they have such a massive like impact like you can go mm-hmm. and 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 uh like for example my son was singing a song from totoro for example and uh, you can You're go like interestingly transported back to that movie, right? Or, or, sure. and, and, or those and emotions. You can, yeah. you, you can you can start singing that song, and any Japanese person will know the words to the song. Like that's that's mm. how much of a cultural impact it has. Um, like his music has on on the people and the culture. So uh, even though maybe we don't do it justice, like uh, he's an absolute legend, and like he's his music has shaped like an entire culture. Uh, so. Sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's pretty much it, honestly, uh, for the movie. I, I think that, like I like I mentioned, um, this movie is really um, a masterpiece for me. It's uh, really at the peak of uh, an artist's kind of work. I think that off of this, it they it was a resounding success. They were able to get their international appeal, and because of that, they were able to make. Uh, Spirited Away, which had an amazing success, won an actual Academy Award, not a fake Japanese Academy Award. That <laughs> what, a, what a real chip. Yeah, exactly. You know, and even though I, I never seen the movie, and I'm not sure if I saw Spirited Away, if I did, it was 20 years ago. But I throughout the past 25 years, I've always heard those two names, especially Mononoke, um, randomly from people or from festivals. I always heard about the movie, right. even though I didn't see it. Yeah. So it goes to show that it really spread out uh, internationally. A couple of things to to add. Uh, like uh, I remember I was having a, a telephone conversation with my mother, and she's like, hey, I watched this really good movie the other day. And I was like, oh, yeah, really? She's like, yeah, it was like this cartoon, but it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> my mother is like 67 years old. <laughs> And then she tells me, uh, it's, like, it's like this forest and he's this, this big wolf. It's just huge, massive wolf. 
She says, did you did you did she find your VHS tape? <laughs> she probably found uh, my VHS tape. Hopefully not next to the not next to the other VHS tapes. <laughs> My ninja scroll vision. But yeah, yeah, it was Princess Mononoke. So even to show you, like it, it generationally, like it's really uh, it's appeal. And also just to just to add uh, before we we let things go, the the influence this movie has had. I mean, it's influenced movies like Avatar, which James Cameron has Good point. has cited. Good point. Um, it's in- influenced tremendously even um, in video games. Zelda, Breath of the Wild. When the first time I saw the trailer for Breath of the Wild, Zelda, I was like, this is definitely inspired by Princess Mononoke. And uh, it was. Um, even a game like, believe it or not, Elden Ring, the oh. the, the elk that you ride, um, right. inspired by uh, by uh, Princess Mononoke. And it's it's a film that, funny enough, it's it's good by itself. It doesn't need to have a sequel or a comic book or whatever. It's kind of like you go into that world and you're at peace with that. With yeah, that, there's with not that a lot of movies like that. Yeah, exactly. It's like Titanic, right? It's such a complete movie. You're fine with Jack Dying. You don't need to make a Titanic 2. <laughs> there's never going to be a Titanic 2, you know? There'll never be a Titanic 2. Even though they're making a it's <laughs> called Titanic 2. But anyways, we're all got into that. But uh, yeah, guys, thank you for um, for joining me to talk about about this film. Uh, any closing thoughts or or anything to add? I'm really happy that I saw this anime, and if we get to see more animes, it's gonna it's gonna Im- increase my anime number, <laughs> maybe even to the double digits. Oh, so, so let's get, uh, get it to sixty four. <laughs> let's get it to let's get yeah. To so I'm looking forward to seeing more animes and. Uh, and getting getting a taste of that magic and lore. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> and uh, Aaron, I'm sure you you were uh, happy with this episode, right up uh, your alley. Right up my alley. Any any excuse I have to watch one of these movies is uh, is is good by me. I was uh, <laughs> I was I was really uh, happy that you picked this film. So thank you, TJ. Awesome. So uh, next movie is going to be you, Tony. You know what it's going to be. Yep, it's going to be Memento by Christopher Nolan. Ooh, oh, I can't wait for that. Yeah, me too. That. Great movie. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us again. This is us signing off. If you liked it, just comments and uh, leave a comment or send us an email about movies you'd like to see in the future. And uh, yeah, we're off. Cue the music. <laughs> Cue the ending. <laughs> Peace, guys. Peace.